Thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I just wish I could see you. These, uh, these lights are, are uh, interesting. Uh, when I was asked by uh, Omega through Michael about a year and a half ago to um, give a keynote to speak at this conference, <clears throat> I was, of course, excited about it. And then I heard that the conference was on uh, aging. That's what I heard. The conference was on aging. And my thought was, um, I'm um, 71 years old. I don't have any time to think about aging. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not soon enough. Then I heard a little more accurately, and since I'm in the business of helping people listen, it was something I should practice. And I listen a little more carefully and realized that the conference was on being ageless, that is, without age. And I thought, that's an interesting uh, title, being without age. I think I finally got it that it's called Aging Without Growing Old. And I thought, well, that I like. Uh, I, 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 I desired, looked for, wished for, wanted immortality. Uh, forever. Ever since I learned about hell, I wanted <laughs> immortality <laughs> somewhere, somewhere else. And so that's really good to do that. But I like Stefan's comment tonight that aging has to do with the feeling, the full vitality of being alive. And the other comments that have been made in the literature that uh, ageless, being ageless means being curious, being open to new things, uh, being uh, vitalized by um, something that compels you. And that's what I want to share a little bit with you tonight is um, how I keep myself from growing old while I am aging. Um, and I do understand uh, the issues about going to the bathroom. <laughs> I want to honor also my uh, beautiful and uh, beloved wife, Helen Kelly Hunt, who is, um, did she come? <laughs> Who's somewhere here in the, in the audience. There's, she's way at the back, like, like a good Baptist, sitting at the back. So I think we should applaud her. She is, she is basically the reason I am growing young. And also, um, uh, without her, I would, uh, would, would be, um, I'd be very different. And it wouldn't be as good. It would, it would not be as good. So thank you, for Helen, for, for who you are and for what you are to me. Now, uh, what keeps me, I want to talk about what keeps me from aging or what keeps me feeling vitally alive while I'm growing old. Um, and I, I've, I've been thinking about that since this conference, and, and just this afternoon, my speech reorganized itself, which is one of those things I really hate. <laughs> you know, after weeks, even months of thinking about what am I going to say, um, and then I'm ready to say it, and I'm going over it in my mind, and all of a sudden the brain says, that won't work. But this will work. And here's what, here's what it is. I think that 
uh, being ageless for me is living um, a question which is ageless and still basically looking for an answer. Somehow that curiosity and the passion and the drive to know something is a compelling and powerful experience for me. And let me tell you what the question is. In 1975, I was on my way to my classroom at Southern Methodist University where I was a professor teaching courses in marital therapy. And on my way to this particular classroom, I was carrying with me a divorce paper uh, to teach and was going to teach in the next hour and a half after receiving my degree, a course in called couples therapy. You can imagine that that was a cognitively dissonant moment. <laughs> in the classroom, the students uh, who were less interested in the fact that I had just come from the divorce court than they were in their own relational experiences engaged me in a conversation unlike any I'd ever had before, which was about 12 of them of graduate students said, we know where you've come from, we know and can imagine what you've been through, we have no judgment about that experience. We want to, we want to tell you about ours, and they said, we have been discussing our relationships and we have found that four of us are single. We've never been able to create a relationship and sustain it. Four of us are married and we are not in a happy relationship. We can only say that in the confidentiality of this classroom, otherwise our spouses would be upset. And four of us are divorced. And they were only 22 years old. And they said, because this was early, early graduate school for them. And they said, we want to ask you a question, Dr. Hendricks. Why do men and women, in those days, uh, before the gender issues were more public, it was uh, about the only question they could ask, especially in a Methodist institution in the South. <laughs> why do men and women have so much difficulty being together. And I responded instantly. I don't have the foggiest idea. <laughs> and as we talked about how little I knew about the subject I was teaching, which was couples therapy, and they called it marital therapy then, I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, that is a question which we should deserve a lifetime to find an answer. So I said to them, you know what? I'm going to commit the rest of my life to answering that question. So I did. And I have. That was in 1975. And this is, I don't know, what is this, 47 years, 40-something years later? How, how, how long is this? See, I, one of the things I'm losing is my... 30 some anyway, it's been a long time. Uh, and through that time met Helen, and Helen and I began a conversation which still goes on as early as this afternoon about this question. I'd like to 
uh, say something about how that question has morphed into a larger question, which is even more compelling. And my view that these two um, questions uh, correlate with each other, which is in addition to why do couples have such, why do men and women have such difficult time being together? Morphed into the question of why is it that human beings have such a difficult time being together? Why is that? And that's where Helen and I have moved to in our thinking, uh, not from couples, but to expand, to include the whole world. And we are fully aware of the narcissism and grandiosity rooted in somebody who takes a project that they've been working on for decades and finally decides that the answer that they've gotten for the local applies to the cosmos. We're fully aware of that, and we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> the reason, and, and in the process of this, uh, of working with this, I, I've become aware that, um, that I have, um, I, that I have a, a, a new definition, a, a, a new way to think about my role. And that, that is that, uh, whereas for most of my life, I thought of myself in some sense as a helper or as a healer, um, in the terms of the role of being therapist, that what I discovered was, in working with couples, that I actually have been a peacemaker. A peacemaker. That, that I've been helping with the war couples engage in all the time. And as I've looked at it, it is a vicious war. Couples are really mean to each other. And I know that's not a good attitude to have when you're sitting there as a therapist and you're waiting for them to come in and sit down and you're going to charge them several hundred dollars for them to talk to you about their relationship. But it's been an interesting thing to look at, just how, how, this, um, how this experience of two people who begin their relationship with the person of their dreams, very soon experience that this person has become the person of their nightmares. <laughs> and they go through all kinds of cycles to relate to each other and finally run out of skills, which they didn't have to start with, and wind up then in the therapist's office asking for uh, some intervention which will enable them to not fight. But why do they fight? And I've come to this conclusion. Couples fight in order to protect themselves from dying. As you push the conflict, why this is going on with partners, push it to its ultimate extent. Most people finally arrive at the point that I had to do that or I would die or I would be killed or some sort of lethal sort of imagery is going on that they fight to the death to keep themselves from dying. It's a rather paradoxical uh, experience. In the process, I looked also, been very curious at how couples fight. What is it that makes it possible for, a, for one person who lives with another person 
and who goes home with that person or comes home to that person every day or night and will have children with that person and who will have sex with that person and who will go to movies with that person, how is it that they wind up in such a transient, episodic, and sometimes relatively chronic difficulty? And here is the chilling thing that seems to have, um, have become clear to us which is that it's possible to do that either chronically or episodically. That is, you fight you know, every other week or every week or every two months or whenever the fights occur. Only when you have been able to transform your partner into the other as an object or to strip them of their essence as subject or as human. You have to make them into an object. And to do that, you also have to see them as unequal to you. Any person who becomes objectified is by definition unequal. And when you become unequal and an object, then uh, conflict all the way from criticism, shame and blame to violence is possible. And I've watched this over the years as couples have done this and seen the tragic piece that comes out of that, which is that in, uh, in that process, uh, what is missing is the capacity for, for empathy. Now, <clears throat> the other thing that has come uh, clear for us over the years is that this nest which begins with love and turns into conflict and violence among so many couples in our country and around the world, is the home of children who grow up in those homes and then move out of those homes into society. And one of the things that we could say with some definitive clarity is that those children carry the unresolved issues in their relationship with their parents, unresolved uh, issues which are basically depression on the one hand and anger on the other. Depression leading to self-abuse all the way from self-criticism all the way up to suicide. And other abuse being anything from criticism of others all the way up to murder and to war. They carry these unresolved issues into society. And that the quality of cultural life the quality of political life, the quality of social life, we think can be traced directly to the quality of personal life in the family. It is a very hard thing to get to, was in our own minds. It's a very hard thing to get to in conversations. It's a very hard thing to get to without a serious counter that the quality of public life is a mirror of the quality of personal private life. And that if we want to know what is going on in a culture and have some sense of what is, if we, when we look at what is going on in a culture, we have some indication of what is going on in the family. Now, <clears throat> the other thing we've paid attention to over the years is given this situation, that the violence in personal life is really difficult and is the source of violence in public life. How do we heal? Now we started working with this project simply to help couples. 
simply to decrease conflict and to help couples have better relationships, help them move into the relationship of their dreams. In other words, we became peacemakers. And in the process of becoming peacemakers, of helping couples make peace with each other, that is to dissolve conflict, <clears throat> we found that that experience of dissolving conflict was healing, and finally are able now to define healing as peacemaking. The two things are the same thing. It's not that there's a pathology that has to be cured in a medical model. It's not that you can take people and, and give them medication or put them in special relationship training boot camps and get them to become better people and then put them back together and they will then be able to be in relationship. The older model is we should get the individual well and then they can have a good relationship. What we've discovered is that it happens in relationship, that the injuring and the wounding happens in relationship and the healing and the wholeness happens in relationship. And that peacemaking is in a sense the source of healing and healing is in fact peacemaking. And what, what makes that possible? we found is a primary intervention. And the primary intervention is uh, dialogue. Now for a long time, we did not know why dialogue helped so much. But what we did know was that it helped enormously to bring in a rapid period of time order and cohesion into the relational life of couples. And what we experienced as we began to study what happens is that one of the reasons that dialogue led to such peacemaking between partners is that dialogue created equality between partners. That it removed a sense of hierarchy, that one person was better than another person, or that a person above was the person who was, had the say in the family. That there was some gender inequality because of whoever was running the family that this um, equity was established through the structure of the dialogical process. The other thing that began to be clear was that in the process of the dialogical transactions, otherness, the otherness of the partner, the otherness of the other began to appear out of the midst of the, the mist, out of the fog of the projection that's in everybody's mind that every, all of us in our relationships with partners live in some sense in a projective, uh, illusory, uh, manufactured, imaginal universe. And the partner that we're living with has been made up out of our own unresolved issues, out of our needs, and out of our fears. And consequently, in a relationship, very seldom do real people meet real people, that people or who are projected illusions, project their illusions upon each other, and consequently the relationship is an attempt by each person to try to maintain or to disassemble that illusion. In the process of dialogue, what happens is that one, the otherness of the other appears out of that fog, out of that mist. Something, someone, some person, some reality, the other is born in the consciousness of the partner they begin to realize that they live, actually live with another person. 
that this other person is not really an extension of themselves, that this other person actually has their own subjectivity, their own feelings, their own thoughts, their own needs, their own values, their own hopes, their own dreams. And once that appears, after the years and years of most of us trying to prevent it from happening, because for God's sake, the most terrifying thing there is in the world is to discover you live with another person. <clears throat> because when you allow that person to become another, you have no control anymore. So you live with another person's freedom to be themselves. It's terrifying because there's no longer any capacity for prediction. But here's what happens when that occurs, when otherness appears, connection begins to happen for the first time. The repair of the rupture from childhood occurs in the relationship. And connection and cohesion happen. The chaos inside, the chaos between becomes ordered. And here was a discovery. The discovery was that couples who stop fighting and who move from conflict to what we would call creative collaboration, who move from projective uh, relating to real relating, and who ultimately assign each other the dignity of otherness and value and own that. And it's happening to couples now all across the world. It's a new kind of relationship. It's a new form of partnership. It's a new marriage. It's happening, and it's coming out of the collective unconscious. It's a whole new thing. When couples do this, this blew us away. They become social activists. Now, all of a sudden, you may say, well, what's so big about that? Well, for us it was really big because all we were in for a long time was just helping couples have better relationships. We thought, that's, that's enough. After a while, the line becomes very long because there are millions of couples, over a million couples a year divorce. For the last, for the last um, 60 years, over 50% of all couples have divorced. Every year, a million plus 100 to 200,000 children uh, move into one-parent homes. The cost of the divorce is enormous. The cost of couples' conflict is enormous in terms of the fact that the couples who divorce and the children, there is now an argument going on, but I think it's a spurious argument that divorce does not harm children. I think we cannot find a child whom divorce has not harmed in some small or large way. That they, the large number of uh, children who act out in school come from um, uh, situations of conflict and divorce. The amazing um, uh, uh, phenomenon that was uh, reported some time ago, somebody had the boldness to write, no one in prison uh, has come from a happy home. That <clears throat> The other day I was uh, at a conference talking with a neurologist and, uh, and a surgeon, and they were talking about the relationship between trauma and disease. 
and I asked them what did they mean by that, and they said that they were finally beginning to be able to make a thesis case that most diseases were related to trauma, traumas that were created by stress, and I said stress in relationships, and they said yes, obviously in relationships, because there's hardly any other kind of stress. And I said, well then given that the committed partnership is the place where most stress occurs, does this mean, are you saying, that most serious illnesses, not just colds and rash and flu and uh, other kinds of uh, headaches and things that would come ordinarily from stress, that most serious illnesses come from stress in the family? They said, yes, stress in the intimate partnership in the family, that most illnesses can be assigned this enormous cost to society of the stress. And what we're discovering is that this can be that, that this can be reduced, that these couples who, who reach the beyond the stress issue and become social activists want a better world. They don't become social activists because they won't, quote, want to give something back out of appreciation. They become social activists because they are compelled by the vision of the experience of what it's like to live in a conflict-free relationship, that they have enough energy to give something back to the world out of their own volition and desire. The Imago organization, what was so surprising to, Helen and I were talking about this last night, isn't it interesting that the Imago organization, the international organization, has a peace project that they see therapy as somehow related to creating peace in the world. They're moving into social action projects and so forth. So I would like tonight to propose uh, a radical thesis. I'd like to propose a radical thesis. And the radical thesis is that couplehood is the fulcrum, conscious, conscious couplehood, couplehood in which there is a connectional energy and a connectional methodology. Conscious couplehood is the fulcrum of personal and social transformation. I'd like to tell you why we want to make that statement and why we make it with such um, energy and conviction. <clears throat> I look around at philanthropy, look around at programs, look around at government, and one of the things that I see that happens in all of these agencies who are doing such enormously wonderful and empathic and caring work for the world is that most of the energy and money and time and personnel is used to respond to, to repair, to take care of, and to try to change the woundedness that is in society that has come from the family. And we call it downriver cleanup. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary because the family has foisted such pain upon our society. The family that's done that is a family that has been created by a marriage which we think is now obsolete. And that's the marriage that's been around for the past 300 years beginning 
in the 18th century when we moved from arranged marriages to marriages by choice. That marriage was a marriage in which people got together, their unconscious selected them, put them together. Uh, when you're put together by your unconscious, you're always put together with an incompatible person. <clears throat> and that incompatibility has emerged and become the source of an enormous amount of violence because incompatibility creating conflict leads to violence. And the culture has not uh, been given the information. Uh, nature does not provide us with a working manual. Somehow the hard drive of the mind has not been uploaded with how to be in relationship with an incompatible person and not kill them. <laughs> that, that, we need, that we need somehow to know that this is, this is really what is going on and that we are needing to change this. And, and Helen and I are, are convinced that something is emerging out of the collective unconscious that we're calling the new marriage, the spiritual marriage, the conscious partnership, which a whole new form of relating is coming about. And this is a new partnership in which uh, people move from conversations that are monological, which have been the form of conversations for thousands of years, in which conversation has been one person talking and other people are supposed to be listening, but actually nobody is. Monological conversations being replaced with dialogical conversation, which produces equity, which reduces fear, which creates safety, which allows the emergence of that unlived self to come into being, to be mirrored and held and honored. We believe all of that is coming to being and coming out of this new partnership that this old form of marriage is a form that is dying as all social forms do when they no longer have the utility that they had when they came into being, as in this case, a hierarchical an, a marriage of inequ inequity that came into being about 300 years ago. We think this new marriage is coming into being. And so what we want to say is that the, the quality of, if the quality of society is a function of the persons who come from the nest of the family, and if the basic structure of the family is the relation between partners, that if that is the case, and we believe it is the case, and that a case can be made for the case, that the family and the quality of society are mutually interdependent, then the case can also be made that a transformed couplehood and a transformed family is the basis for the transformation of society. <clears throat> if we had, if we could move to, if we could really get the urgency of this project, the need for the transformation of relationships at their core and the most core relationships, the intimate ones, we would then begin to transform uh, society. We could move from a, from, a, from a society of conflict to a society of peace. We could actually begin to experience peace on earth, goodwill to everyone, not just to men. What we would do essentially is we would all move to the phenomenon of the experience of otherness. We would all move and be helped to move and be able to understand the enormous 
significance of empathic responding, of the capacity to actually experience the fact that other people have experiences that are not ours, and that those experiences they have are not ours to judge and condemn and relegate and label in any way at all from the DSM-4 manual of psychiatric diseases to any other kinds of labels we may put on people. No one from a happy family would go to, goes to prison. No one who comes from an empathic environment would destroy our environment. When I saw Al Gore's uh, documentary on uh, Inconvenient Truths, I was sitting there in tears, and the tears had these words. How could we do this to ourselves? And we're doing it. And then the next sentence came, and I said to Helen, no empathic species would do this to themselves. And the hardness that has come from living in non-empathic Familial environments is a direct source of global warming and environmental degradation. Our daughter, uh, Mara, who is working now with the oceans, is totally committed, absolutely pathologically committed, obsessively committed to cleaning up the oceans because she wants to dive in it and not see dead reefs. So she's turned into a social activist ocean cleaner-upper at a professional level. And what she said to me the other day just blew my mind. She says, Dad, 27% of the oceans are already dead. And she said, if that doesn't get changed, given the fact of the dependency we have on the oceans for the quality of air, we are all going to die. I thought, well, I guess... That sort of relativizes my work with couples. <laughs> Take the case of the relationship in our culture and all around the world with the status of women. Feminism did not arise because women wanted to have something to do. It arose because women have lived for thousands of years in a violent familial structure that was also true in the social structure. Helen has written a book called Faith and Feminism in which she outlines the enormous conflict almost to the point of the kind of violence we see with couples between faith and feminism, faith and women because the structure of the church and of religion has been so violent toward the status of women. And so there's this, you can hardly put those two words in the same sentence, she says. Faith and feminism do not go together. But her book is a, different, is a statement about a different thing, that the church needs the voice of women, and women need the structure of the church, that this fight is absolutely unnecessary. The morning that she, her book came out, a, an encyclical was written by um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who now has a different name. And that encyclical was a 37-page document that said, Feminism has destroyed the family. 
And Helen's response was, oh, God, there goes my book. What she meant by it was, wow, what a thing. So we were talking about this and uh, came to the conclusion. I don't. She says that I suggested it to her, but I don't know. Sometimes I don't know when we talk whose suggestion becomes the one we act upon. So I like to claim them all. <laughs> um, it makes me the, the active one. So, so why don't you send your book to the Pope? And she said, ah, I'll do that. And the next morning she said, I think I will. So she, um, you know, started writing a letter, Dear Pastor Pope, or something. Not being a Southern Baptist, she didn't know how to address the Pope. She called up her Catholic friend, and they told her how to write a letter to the Pope, <clears throat> your, Dear Your Holiness. And so she wrote the letter, and she basically said, you know, there's Cardinal Ratzinger, and he's written this 37-page encyclical of uh, against feminism because it's destroying the church. And uh, she said... Couldn't we engage in dialogue? Couldn't we engage? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be valuable for the for women in the church to engage in dialogue? So she wrote this letter and sent him the letter uh, with uh, with her book. Uh, and I think you also, Helen, didn't you say you sent to Getting a Love You Want so he would have uh, two books to read? <clears throat> and to her great surprise, in a month she received a personal letter back from the Vatican. Now, I want you to know what it's like to live with, go to bed at night with, sleep with a woman who's having a dialogue with the Vatican. And she's a Southern Baptist. Her Catholic friends who responded to her said, Helen, not even Catholics get letters from the Vatican. So she wrote back, the Pope wrote and said, um, you know, blah, 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 we got it, we received it, thank you. And uh, we're taking consideration. And here are some things we think you should read. And they sent her a long bibliography about, you know, the church's relationship to women. So Helen read that dutifully, did the mirroring, validating, empathizing process that we teach everybody to do. This is what I hear you saying. It makes sense to me you would say that, and I can imagine you feel very good doing that. <laughs> sent, it, sent her summary back to the, uh, to the Vatican and, uh, and said, oh, and by the way, uh, included is a list of readings for the Pope. The first one was uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most relational uh, and, and most friendly toward women uh, book in the New Testament. Um, a society of empathy would not relegate half of the people on this planet to secondary status. We need to change, we need to change the way we parent children. Here's another story. I recently read this book that blew my mind, written by a psychohistorian. The psychohistorian said this. Three generations before the French Revolution and the American Revolution, doctors in Europe began to write pamphlets to mothers and fathers saying, it would be a better way to rear children to treat them with kindness than with punitive discipline. It would be better for children to breastfeed them than to give them um, mush and to give them little, they were fed often with little sacks that had little nipples built into them and they would try to suck some sort of um, mashed up grain and, and milk through that. It would be better 
if you kept young children at home uh, until they were five or six years old, rather than farming them out to other people in the community to socialize them and essentially brutalize them until they were contained and controlled and socialized. It would be better if children were treated with kindness, were held at the mother's breast, and kept in the family. This, these pamphlets began to spread. Families began to uh, treat children more kindly, breastfeed them, and keep them at home. Now, this psychohistorian makes this radical claim, which I find terribly convincing. Because what happened was that in a period of three generations, a group of people rose up that had never had this kind of consciousness on the planet before. And the consciousness was a refusal to be subject to monarchy. And they said to the kings, no more unilateral rule. And they foisted, took three times for the French to succeed, a revolution against monarchy. The problem was that you replace the monarchy with copies of the monarchy, which is yourself, and it took a long time. The Puritans, who were one of the founding group for America, they say, had the same sort of training. The children were, 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 were trained with, with kindness, with, uh, with empathy, and with tenderness. And these were new kinds of people. These new kinds of people changed history at the tectonic level. The amazing thing that for thousands of years, monarchy, hierarchy, and vertical organization of experience had been almost unquestioned on the planet. And here, in this one generation, were people having been subjected to a different kind of nurturing, said to the oppressors, no! And we have, as a result of that, a democratic government in America. There's no end to the possibilities of the quality of life if we could move into conscious relating, conscious loving, empathic caring for our children, for our partners, for each other. It would all extend then out to the family to friends, to the environment, to the animals, to the trees, to the forest, to the flowers. There's no end to what could happen if we could heal, be healed of the woundedness. And what would happen if we could stop wounding our children? We have to. Or my daughter says, we're all going to die because the oceans in losing their health and their ambience. The last thing I want to say is that the other new idea that has evolved in the past few years is the awareness that we live in a relational universe. Now, what does that mean? For thousands of years, from the Greek philosophers all the way down through Newton and Freud, and most other models of the organization of society, there's been an operating assumption that everything, 
from a particle to a person to an atom was separate. And that it had to be the relationship between things had to be constructed. And there was a natural antipathy of one thing for another. So one needed to learn skills to communicate. You had to create uh, treaties. You had to do all kinds of things to bring opposing polarities together. One of the fascinating, powerful, amazing things that's now in the consciousness of the culture. You all know it because you come to these kinds of workshops, these kinds of conferences, is that that view of nature is now out of style or obsolete. And that what we now have is a view of the interconnectedness of all things. That there is no possibility of one acting isolated and locally without affecting the cosmos. Meaning everything and everyone is impacted by anything we think, say, or do. That we live in such an interconnected universe that it's morally irresponsible to think of oneself only because it simply doesn't exist. We are a part of the tapestry of being, of the network of being, and to become responsible for that is the highest moral calling. And to bring into that interaction of all things the best that we are. And I think if we go back, if we want to really make a difference and not just be inspirational or prophetic or dynamic, that we have to change the way we relate to each other at the primary level. We have to change the way we relate to our children. We have to ultimately change the core. The nest of society has to be modified. So in my last two minutes, I would like to say this. I call for, Helen and I jointly call for a Manhattan-sized project. If we could create a bomb in five years that could destroy a culture, why can't in five years we create a consciousness so that everybody on the planet understands that love is the answer? and that it begins at home. And that children who are loved will not remember Egypt. They will in fact move themselves and move all of us to the promised land of peace on earth. Goodwill to us all. Thank you for indulging my fantasy. <laughs>